and just having been around like Silicon Valley firms again for like almost three decades, if you looked at the firms that either aren't around anymore, I'm not going to pick on names, or that like how well they've done over the last three decades compared to the others, if you charted out, you know, where they started and where they are now, there's almost perfect correlation to the ones that have done the better of the Silicon Valley firms are the ones that are sort of function like Hooli does and really have it all for one, one for all versus just the, you know, letting people invest themselves in their companies and in their clients and letting them take advisor equity. Like as soon as you let people on the cap table in any way, it just blows up. And then you have like people, it's not fair among the firms. You have litigators and you have people that do real estate and people that do tax and you have people that do public companies and capital markets that don't have those opportunities. And so it's just, they're not going to be, if you're investing, if you're letting people invest personally in the companies or even part of it, it's not, suddenly the associates want to work for them and, oh, I'll work on you if you cut me in and just create this whole like market and dysfunction and misalignment where for us, the litigators and the people doing public companies are able to invest in those funds in the exact same amount as they should be. Dear friends, Kurt Dernick's here. If this is your first time listening, I am so glad you found us. This week, we chat with lawyer Dave Young, founding partner at Cooley's Los Angeles office. Cooley Law Firm is arguably the top law firm in the technology sector and handles more than 1,000 venture capital financings each year, advising both investors and companies. Dave's an expert in all things startup, from financings, IPOs, M&As, you name it, he's seen tech booms and busts from Silicon Valley to Seattle. And he really knows how markets move. And we explore LA's vibrant tech scene and why Cooley's model sparks success for its clients. Disclaimer, I'm just a Cooley fan, I'm not a client. And tune in for insights from a legal pro who's seen it all. And on to today's show, here's Dave. Dave Young, buddy, so good to see you. Friday, going, you. Into, uh, going into holidays 2023. You know, I saw you uh, a week and a half ago at the Jim Jonasson holiday party. That was so fun. It's, that was great. It was good to get a chance to chat. Definitely a great event. That uh, that would raise a ton of money. So for charity. Yeah, so 20K. I love it. I was on the board of Thursday nights, uh, I think 2016, 2017. And Jim Jonasson, AKA JJ, is like a, non-blood uncle to me I, I he was at our wedding and i just love him so much he's your uncle he's my brother yeah my, uh, all right there we go what does that make us i mean yeah um so i've been really looking forward to this conversation i've known you since 2009 which is insane going on 15 years we i think that's we, right when you're starting up city source is that yeah yeah, and then uh, you were at DLA Piper at the time, and uh, we were we didn't we didn't work with you, um, but we worked with some of your colleagues. And then you went off and and started the Cooley office. What what year was that? Uh, we started Cooley's office uh, in LA in Santa Monica in 2012. Yeah, so a few years later. Yeah, and you guys have just had an incredible run. Um, so much to cover. Even though we haven't collaborated formally, uh, I mean, you and I, I looked this up on LinkedIn. We have 220 mutual contacts, and we kind of compete with Jim Jonasson as the unofficial mayor of Silicon Beach. Nice. Yeah, appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, we've been definitely, like, lurking in the same circles for a long time. You know, you and I, so it's great to connect further. 
Yeah, just people just love you. I was doing some work or some research online and you had one Intel article had you as number one attorney in LA out of 70,000 attorneys in Los Angeles. Why do you think they selected you as number one, Dave? Is that a little pay for play? And what was that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not pay for play. They actually did actually try to get you to pay like $400 to be able to get yeah. some badge to publish or something. But you're like, I don't pay. I don't pay. I did not pay it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows? That that list is, I mean, some of those lists, they like ask firms to submit a couple people. That one is not done that way. I don't know. Mm. You know, maybe they just went to chat GPT and yeah. created the list. Like, uh, you know, it's always, it's always nice to see that. And some of it's just feedback from clients, people out in the world. So it is uh, good to hear. Yeah. The number two is Yoni over at DLA. And we, when we were interviewing attorneys for um, our fund, Real World Asset Group, we talked to him and he was great energy. Um, I don't know how well you know him. I don't know him well. Um, we, I mean, at least my former firm, but we didn't overlap, but I've heard great things as well. You're not first or last, but. Damn, DLA was expensive. They quoted us like 225, 250K to do the fund formation. It was insane. It was twice as much as like the next highest bid. That, you know, maybe hard to calibrate, but it, you know, it's a challenge like in the legal world, especially working with startups that like it's, it is definitely an outsized expense for companies of all sizes, let alone when you're starting up a fund, starting up a company. Yeah. So it's just a challenge to both for Yoni and for me and for everyone to like just make sure that people are delighted and not just satisfied because it is an outsized expense for all of them. It's a little brutal. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, it might not have been an apples for apples quote because we were also talking about international stuff and that could have been all in and we were maybe re referencing it to just the other US related bids. For guys like me that have been in business a while, but you know, I, I didn't go to law school. I always felt like, like, like for example, I'm studying for my CFA right now and I'm getting sharp with accounting and all that stuff. And that was another area where I just sort of felt like I just was, you know, had a blindness around and I just feel so much more confident in, in what we're doing, having that expertise. And, you know, I worked for like Jason Nazar for a while at DocStoc and I know he got a JD at, at Pepperdine and. Actually, one of the first questions I wanted to ask is like, what, in your sense, what advantages have you seen with, with entrepreneurs that have a legal background versus don't? What's sort of the, the one of the differences you see there? Yeah. And I was actually DocStock's counsel from inception. Um, you know, I didn't realize you were there. That's great. I remember, um, you know, we were like negotiating the term sheet for the, what was then it was long long ago enough now that it was called Series A because Series Seed wasn't yeah. even a term. Like yeah. that well, term well, wasn't a thing yet. But he was like negotiating that with Prescott like while Jason was still at Pepperdine and taking that must uh, that must have been like oh, for the mark oh, oh. like two thousand six maybe? Oh yeah. Two thousand five? Yeah. maybe not that early, but at least oh eight, like somewhere around there. Yeah. It was pretty early. Maybe in early. I think it's helpful. I mean, I think it gives people sort of a certain, you know, certain way of looking at the world and, you know, it, it depends a little bit, right? I mean, it's hard when people try and are jumping in the business side where they have more of a litigation background because they're used to viewing the world in terms of risk and people battling. And sometimes that makes people over index on things like just an example, you know, someone that's been a litigator, they'll tell you like, wow, if you do this, like you're going to get sued half the time. And it's like, no, that's just the time it crossed your desk because you're a litigator. First thing that's do like 1% of the time, people do this all the time, is just that you never saw it because you're seeing this limited view of the world 
when people are fighting with each other. And so, you know, it changes a little bit of perspective there. But I think that, you know, the education and just how to think critically and analyze things, I think is helpful. You know, it's just good to, you know, to sort of your point, I want to understand accounting and different things. Like I did a, an MBA as well. And, you know, and it's just helpful to, um, I'm probably the most helpful thing is some of people's clients just think you're smarter to more about business because you have an MBA, but the reality is it help it does help as far as just having corporate finance and accounting and even statistics and the different things that like, and just even marketing, like the things that come along with that, it's just, you know, being, you know, having that education and background does help you, even if you're applying it to, you know, to something else. Um, you know, Jason's a good example out of someone that took it in a different direction has done amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, we do see a lot of people out there, you know, and it may be the smart ones, um, who, you know, get lockeries and go do something else. Like your point about your, your, uh, relative telling lawyer jokes. Like I, you know, I more or less like hate dealing with lawyers, it's just, you know, hate lawyers, I guess, but I've just stuck dealing with them because of the, the world that I live in. And maybe that's overgeneralizing. Obviously it isn't. Yeah. Like, you know, there are certain approaches to things that even on the transactional side are the, are the cause for those lawyer jokes. You know, people who like, they're going to concede a point and they know they're going to like in a, like a New York M and a New York style M and a negotiation. They know they're going to see something, but only if you actually like have the intestinal fortitude to like argue for 90 seconds, making your point about why you need it. And if you don't do that, they're not going to give the point, which is just stupid. Like if you're, if you're going to give the point, you think it's reasonable, just give it. Don't like enjoy the fight and enjoy the arguing, but that's just unfortunately how some lawyers are wired. Um, and it just, you know, makes things expensive and makes, you know, puts yeah. a lot of friction. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a multi-layered onion. What comes out there is that, you know, because it's a time-based billing thing and you have to sort of like be able to demonstrate value and that. I think probably through negotiating is probably a pretty good way to be able to do that. And, you know, what, what can you negotiate on behalf of your client? And especially if the client's on the phone, I guess the insight about the only the 50% that come across your desk is a really great insight. I don't, any idea what that kind of bias is called? There must be some academic term for that kind of bias. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's seeing the wrong sample set. Sometimes there's just areas where people know too much. You sort of go too deep on your own you know, in your own area on things that, that don't necessarily matter out in the world. Right. So that's just where having, you know, having judgment is the important thing, right? Like as, you know, as lawyers, like being able to look at an agreement and figure out like how to make each sentence better for your client or your side is that is super easy. And, you know, that's like table stakes. It's being able to like figure out what's important and focus on what's important and focus on what matters. And, you know, and, and, and I guess to the point of the, of not over-indexing experience, have enough experience to know what's really going to matter. Right. And not, you know, trying to avoid that kind of confirmation bias or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts. One, this idea around, does it make business sense versus legal and kind of looking at, you know, how to harmonize the two. And then also just, I've had some really, uh, poor experiences with bad attorneys, uh, some of which, you know, that we won't need to name names. And then some really inexperienced attorneys that were negotiating on my behalf that I didn't, I was young and I just thought if you're an attorney, you just sort of knew the law. And then I've, I've had incredible attorneys that have just, some of the best money I've ever spent is actually with some attorneys that did some, uh, some great work for us and netted out an incredible result. 
and it was their process that that got that result so you know i've sort of seen the gamut and um taking the first topic how do you balance sort of this bit the business dimension and harmonizing the legal risk how do you have a framework for that or is it case by case or talk to us about that well, I mean, I think at some level, you just have to sort of realize that everything is a business decision, right? And that including taking risk and whether, you know, so it's just, so if you sort of approach it with that framework, I think that's what makes it easier, you know, and then, and then I think some of those better lawyers are the ones that actually are using their judgment to help the client analyze that risk because that's why they've hired you that's why they're paying you know a thousand dollars an hour whatever like ridiculous rate they're paying is because of having 30 years or however many years a person been doing it of doing nothing but that kind of deal and so or or you know dealing with similar companies trying to do similar things or you know facing similar challenges and so you're able to sort of layer on that experience and help the clients make the decision and not always say, okay, here's how it works legally and push it back to them. I think that's the real, um, the real problem. And then at the same time, like that, like that's the external facing part of it, the internal facing part of it, like within a law firm is the same thing that like, you know, you're a business and your, you, your business is to make your clients happy. And that's not always to turn through everything to the maximum extent, because that's going to be really expensive and the deal's not going to be smooth. Like if you're representing an investor on it, to make it a little more clear, like, you know, on a series A preferred stock financing in a startup or a venture back company, they want to get that deal closed efficiently within three or four weeks and they want it to be smooth. And so, yes, you have to identify the important issues and like negotiate the financing documents so that they work, but actually what some people might view is doing a better job on the financing and pushing for all of these investor favorable things and having to have a bunch of calls and picking at diligence things that ultimately aren't really going to matter because the investor is going to own 20% of the company and be aligned with the company to solve those issues. That's not necessarily what the client wants or is in their interest. Like that, yes, maybe you made a few sentences better for them, but you made the process choppy. You made it take yeah. longer. You made it more expensive. And that's not why they hired you. They hired you to like get the deal done smoothly and flag what's important, right? So it's just that, I guess it's that same ability from a business level is, you know, you can look at risk, but then you want to like be able to prioritize what are the things that really matter I think what kind of separates the great from the good. From Yeah, the and there's that, that time-tested adage that, or the, yeah, all the pun intended, uh, that time is the killer of all deals. You know? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, even when people, you know, have, you know, term sheets signed and they're pushing to get, you know, a binding definitive agreement signed ASAP really kind of for no reason other than they just want to get it done quickly. They're not wrong. Like they're, you know, they're doing it before something happens in the world that causes some major shock and, yeah. you know, a, a COVID, a nine eleven, a, you know, there's these things and, and yes, does that normally happen? No, but it definitely has, yeah. you know, it's, um, uh, you know, and sometimes, sometimes it's an external shock and sometimes, it's internal. Like, you know, I've had deals where like one example is, you know, we had a financing that's all set. This was years ago, you know, this is probably 2008, but you know, all set to close and, you know, we didn't get it done. We were trying to get it done by like, you know, 
the August, you know, the certain day, April 30th or something. And then, you know, we missed the target closing date and May 1st came around and like every, all the funds were like in escrow documents signed, everything ready to go, except for this one investor. And, you know, May 1st came around and Siemens said, Hey, like, by the way, we know we said we wanted to close for April 30. And that was because we have a new CEO and we've shut down our venture fund and we don't do, we're not doing any more venture investing and the deal never closed. And, you know, and that company was raising 10 million, ended up having to go raise three at a much lower valuation. And that was like eight months later. So there are times where people push to close for no, re you know, not for no specific reason because time kills all deals, as you said, and they're totally right. Because I remember which deals just never closed again because of COVID, because of 9-11, because it yeah. didn't happen or just a cut shock to the economy. And it, it sucks for those companies. It's not their fault. Yeah. Pressing rewind, you, you've been practicing law for a minute now. You, I think you told me it, we hung out at, co at coffee last month. 95 is when you started practicing? Yeah, exactly. So I started um, in 95, which, you know, which was a really, you know, it was an amazingly just lucky time for me to sort of jump into working with startups and technology companies. Yeah. And venture back companies, um, you know, really because that was just, you know, the internet, you know, Yahoo and Netscape went public in 94 or whatever. And so that was when things really started yep. exploding and taking off. And it was just a period where like from 94, 95 to maybe 1998, 1999, there were six times more venture back companies in, in that period. And so the people who had, you know, that set of Silicon Valley firms that had really been doing that work, there was such a high demand for people that had actually been doing it for a while. And then as things progressed, people had been doing it since 95, it actually was longer than, you know, almost everyone. So it sort of was like right as it really started to blow up. And so it's not a coincidence. A lot of the people that like came, started in that practice around that time are the ones that are like leading law firms and doing well. And, you know, they just sort of you know, were senior associates during the internet bubble and then just took off since then because there just were so many less experienced people jumping in to the space just by definition. Just it was like crypto more recently where like people that have been or web three, people have been doing it for five years, that was an eternity because no one had been doing it for longer. Right. It was that yeah. same it was kind of that same thing. Um there wasn't no one that doing it longer, but there were very few people that had. And so it was this huge advantage um, that, you know, was to the end, just more lucky than smart, but that's how things work sometimes. Why did you want to study law and practice law? And it was the tech sector just right place at the right time? Or was it in, an insight that you had or a little bit of both? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, my, I mean, so for me, so I don't know that, um, you know, going to law school and then again, I mentioned I did a JD MBA, so business school as well. I wouldn't say that was the most thoughtful decision in the world, partly because, I mean, you know, I want to go to graduate school, but I was coming out of college in the early 90s, and that was a really bad recession, but that was a, re that was a recession that was in particular really, really hard on L.A. Like, the defense sector got just destroyed in the early 90s, yeah. and that's what L.A. was at the time. Yeah. Hard to remember that now, but because um, it, it changed so much. And so this the job market sucked, and so I just didn't want to, I didn't want to get a job. And also I liked going to school. I liked having the free time and like, you know, I wasn't the most motivated person, the student, you know? And so, um, I just didn't want to get a job. And so I, uh, went 
and I couldn't decide between law school and business school. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll just park myself for an extra year, do four years and do both. And so, you know, and I definitely had a business bent. And so I knew I wanted to, and then even like deciding come with the data MBA, even deciding like whether I want to do business or law, like, you know, I had a ton of student loans from doing graduate school at a private school and the law jobs paid more than the business jobs. And that was literally like the, that was my thought process. And that's what drove me towards that. So I was going to be able to pay the loans more easily. Um, but I did know, you know, I had the business background. And so I knew I wanted to do something transactional, something business related. And I had grown up in Silicon Valley. And so that's really like, I was saying when you're oh, I want to work with emerging companies. And I was like saying the right terms. Did I really know what it meant? And did I really know what it was? Not really. Like, you know, I, and, and especially because back then, again, that was pre-internet. And so there just wasn't the information, it's hard to even imagine this now, but there wasn't information on like what the, who the law firms were and even what they did. Like there was nowhere to like look up and read about the law firms. Like there was like, you know, pamphlets and little photocopied three-page forms with numbers of people in each office and salary numbers in like the law school job placement office or whatever. But there was, so these people weren't as smart back then about what was going on. So I got a little bit lucky. Like I did say that and ended up with, you know, um, uh, you know, in San Diego at Gray Carey, which is the predecessor, predecessor GLA Piper. And they had just merged a San Diego firm with a Silicon Valley firm, Gray Carey in San Diego, where Friedrich in Powell in Silicon Valley. And so we're starting like a North County tech only North County, San Diego tech only focused office. So I was like, you know, lawyer number six in that office. Um, and so it worked out really well that I was like on the ground floor of like, you know, in one of the starting out in one of the like burgeoning tech markets and uh, getting to do it. And it worked out really well for me. But again, it was, I, I went looking for it, but not really for very thoughtful reasons. It was more just because I was from Silicon Valley. That was like, yeah. Yeah. You were probably also, you know, you're young, you're, you're kind of tuned into the zeitgeist and probably some kind of like spidey sense around it of what was kind of on deck and, yeah. I mean, that's all great. I mean, look, you've been practicing almost 30 years. You're still a young guy and it's incredible. Uh, the experience, the markets that you've been through, uh, you know, the dot-com boom, the crash and 08 and COVID. And so I want to talk a little bit about that favorite market that you've participated in and, and why. Yeah. And I think, you know, and it's interesting because, um, you know, I could almost look at that in, two different ways, right? That I've had, um, unintentionally, I had sort of jumped around markets, meaning geographic markets a yep. lot. And then also there's a different like time period markets where I, you know, I spent time in San Diego and then some time in Silicon Valley. And then I was in Seattle, a venture law group where I was again, like lawyer number six of an office that grew a ton, you know, during the internet bubble. So great time there started Venture Law Group's LA office, so lawyer number, you know, one out of two in 2000 when I moved to LA, um, and then eventually founding Cooley's office in 2012. So I had sort of been, saw all saw San Diego, saw Silicon Valley, Seattle, and LA, but then also was in, you know, four different times was, you know, either lawyer number one or lawyer one of the first six lawyers in an office of a Silicon Valley firm in those different non-Silicon Valley markets. So just had a, a really good, interesting sense of how to, you know, how to, um, 
uh, you know, attack a new market and how different like tech markets grow and what, you know, what makes them boom. And they're like, you know, being in Seattle in 1998, 99, 2000 was amazing because that was just such a fun time with the internet and everything being, you know, so new and just so crazy. But, you know, LA has just certainly the, the funnest market from that perspective was just the, I'd have to say it was the more recent years in LA where, you know, LA has went from being a third, solidly third tier venture market when I first came down in 2000 and like wrote a business plan for venture law group about why it was going to make sense. And at that time, LA was the fastest growing venture market on a percentage basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it actually got hit the hardest of any market, but it's still a third tier market. And it got hit the hardest of any market in 2001, two and three, because all LA had was internet companies and it's hard to, it didn't have any life sciences, didn't have really any networking companies or hardware companies. And it's hard to imagine that like being an internet company was a bad thing, but in 2003, it actually was like, it was, those are the companies that had all the hype and were funded and didn't have the, you know, went public with no business model. Um, and so, you know, LA actually got hit the worst and then, you know, kind of 2005, six, seven as the web 2.0, I guess it was called, like started to really hit, you know, LA was suddenly, you know, in the middle of that with, you know, MySpace and lower my bills and, you know, how these exits that were five, $600 million exits, which were huge at the time, um, and really started to just take off. And then, you know, it just accelerated opening the Cooley office was at the right time. Um, uh, again, maybe more luck than doing that on purpose, but you know, started that if you look at the growth in LA, that 2012 and on, yeah. um, has just been amazing building to just, you know, 2021 was just with record ideas. Yeah, record you say that kind of post COVID boom was the, probably your favorite in LA was your favorite market. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, if, if, uh, with all that experience and, and, uh, all the sort of momentum and, you know, at that point, 10 years of, of Cooley kind of in LA. So like everything I'd been doing up until then was sort of preparing for that, you know, for that craziness, you know, yeah, having built the team, having built the skill sets, having built seeing a different market. So that's, you know, which is sort of how things work in life, right? You're, you know, you spend a bunch of time doing different things and then that hopefully they're preparing you for what you're doing now. I don't really know much else other than LA. I mean, I did spend uh, a year in San Francisco when I was on the BD team at Lime and that was in 2017, 2018 and, you know, living with Holden there. And, you know, I sort of felt like at that time, it was a really weird time to be in San Francisco. It was like, I mean, I was pretty heads down with the business, but even my friends there were just, you know, had families and were too busy and I didn't really get to see a lot of people. Um, whereas in LA, you know, when I came into the market in 08, 09, it was collegiate. There was like, you know, we were young and we were doing events all the time and we were all sort of like figuring it out together. LA absolutely like of all markets of just being interconnected and having a ton of events and having, you know, sort of a community, it, it really has helped LA grow. And I think that some of it's just the nature of the kinds of companies and the nature of the market, like just, you know, in, I don't know, if you, not to, you know, if you went to San Diego, it's life sciences companies, people have PhDs, they're just, they're not, they're, you know, maybe the founders a little older, they're just not, you know, as excited to go networking and out together. They're not even excited to like introduce 
themselves to you know, introduce their CEOs to people like you or people like me or people, you know, to others. They're just not the sort of networking part of it doesn't matter as yeah. much to their business and to their success. And then it's just the, the DNA, um, uh, of LA and, you know, and I, I think that the demographics work, but New York as well, right. New York and LA went from both went from being third tier markets to being the solidly number two and number three, um, you know, venture markets. And, you know, there's a few reasons for that, but you know, it's been great to see. Yeah. San Francisco, it's at a high altitude. It's such a large market. There's so much money and it feels very clickish to me. Yeah. It is. And that's right. And to some extent, people don't, you know, they don't rely on the organizations and different things as much as they need to because they don't, because they don't need to. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, if you were trying to start a tech market in, you know, Kansas city or something, you'd like have like some group that would be like everything like, okay, this is the people that are making this happen where, you know, they're like, you just don't need it. So it's the good and the bad of being just the, such a dominant, you know, yeah. market where LA's, you know, the number three venture market, but it's, that's 35% of the market that's number one. You know, it, they really have this massive, you know. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting, I've heard it say that San Francisco is the utopia gone wrong and, and Los Angeles is the dystopia gone right. <laughs> I, know yeah, I love that. I've it never heard that. Where you have a lot of these, especially during COVID, a lot of the San Francisco crew started coming down. And I know like A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz set up a big LA office. Is that is that up yet? Is that live? I, I, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's on Second Street, like right a lot yeah. in Santa Monica, like right near my office. Yeah, big one. Um, yeah, and I think in the context of LA, it is very you know open. Like I got a note a couple years back from Jim Jonasson saying, "Hey, like you know, I want to help David Cooley find a, a a BD lead for the LA office." And who's who could we refer? It was like the Curdy D of a couple years ago, and I was like, "Oh, you got to meet Rachel Arney." And uh, referred her in, and you know she seems like she's done an incredible job for you guys the last couple of years, um, helping kind of you know do what she does best, which is you know build community. And I think it's incredible that you guys have uh, somebody. Um, not only that 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 role is open, but you guys did such a good job filling it. Um, yeah, well, we only did a good job filling it because of you. So we do do appreciate that. I know you won. Like well, I, it wasn't it wasn't just me though. It was JJ. It was, it was JJ, just, but he was, got. But right, he's the one that actually proactively, like, without, uh, and he actually sent us. I think half of our best candidates. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't his search fee, but some like, you know, magnum of really nice wine or something. He got some gift that probably should have gone to you. So maybe I owe you. I don't know. It's all good. Um, and, you know, and I, and I know that like that's, you know, you, you operate in a similar way to me that like, it's sort of, how can I be helpful? And then you do things like that and then just good things come from it. Right. It might be three years later, might be five years later, yeah. might be whenever later. Right. And JJ absolutely operates that way. And that's why that happened. Right. That like you get, you know, Rachel, you know, Horning, who is, a, you mentioned our like SVP of business development in LA, who it's a misnomer. Like she's an out, she's just, she's like a super connector that just, you know, in, in the community is the role that she plays for us of just getting no investors, getting no companies, helping connect them, being out, you know, courting events. It's, it's a, you know, I think it's a fun role for her, but she has, she's crushed it. And it's one that's maybe a little unique for most law firms. I think partly because if you didn't really have a startup kind of venture focused practice, it wouldn't probably function in the same way, you know, public companies or whatever, it doesn't, it's not quite gonna, 
going to work. But um, that was that was a great example of just that that close knit network in LA and how people operate, sort of helping lift the you know the boat for everyone. Yeah, yeah Adam Grant, uh, professor of uh, management at Wharton, wrote a book called Give and Take. It's a short little book. Have you read this book? I have not. I, uh, it's the, I could share the insight, but it gives I've heard great things from him. The Los Angeles market and these, you know, it's essentially that there's there's three kinds of three classes of people. There's givers, matchers, and takers. And you could probably think off the top of your head, you know, like Jim Jonason threw it through as a giver. But there's two kinds of givers. There's two cohorts. There's givers that give to other givers, and then there's givers that give to anybody indiscriminately. And the givers that indiscriminately give underperform all classes. And the givers that give to other, yeah, they underperform. And the givers that give to other givers outperform all classes. That's amazing. It's a subtle distinction because a giver that gives to other givers is not a matcher. They're not doing it for a quid pro quo. Right. That's right. But they're also able to somehow figure out who the others are, who are the other givers to givers. And, and it's a sort of a reflexive loop that happens. And it, and it kind of like, I, I, I don't know, it probably, it's some you know, interesting alignment that happens. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I would hope I'm the giver because other givers, I don't know. But like, I, you know, the way it's interesting because like the way that, um, you know, the way we're just referrals of, and again, we sort of operate again in this like venture back company, startup company community, the way that referrals work, like they very rarely are where the people sit at different stages in the company's life where like they're not, um, they actually don't, they aren't even set up to go quid pro quo. And, you know, like, for example, like there are people that refer companies to me but that's because the company is like very early stage or doing their first round of financing. But then like when I refer companies to investment bankers or accountants or recruiters or, you know, they, the companies they deal with are already like post series A and already have quality counsel 98% of the time. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. Like, I don't care. And sometimes they're like, oh, I can't, how do I refer back to you? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm just referring to the person I think is going to do the best job for the company, like I'm not referring it because I'm expecting you to like go out of your way to try and, you know, send something back to me. I'm trying to be helpful to this company. And if I'm helpful to you again, to your point, like good things will happen in the world later, but that, you know, but that's, that's not, you know, that's not why you do it. Um, and it doesn't even work well again, because people sit in the same way that people send companies to me, like I can send them a bottle of wine at the holidays, which will probably, should probably get around to given that, you know, we're about to do the, the Christmas and New Year's break. Um, maybe you should get on that, but it, um, you know, but that's about it because again, like they just, they're doing something else where they're, they're seeing this pipeline of 